Well, today begins our eighth week in the study of Genesis. You folks who don't like going through long, long book studies, don't worry. We just have a few more weeks. We're not going to complete the entire book. But it's a fascinating study. I don't know if you have uh, picked up on some new things. Every week I have people tell me I never knew that was in there. It's, it's a very, um, oh, I don't want to say common, maybe a familiar story to us. And there's so much beneath the surface uh, that, we, that we easily overlook. Last week we looked at uh, the... Uh, we're reminded of the judgment of sin, the consequence of our rebellion, over and over and over. In chapter 5, in the godly line of Seth, over and over we saw, and he died. So even in the righteous line of Seth, you see the curse of sin, which is death, continually coming to fruition uh, upon mankind. You know, once sin entered, uh, God's perfect world began to decay. There wasn't decay and disease and, and suffering. But man and animals, at the point that sin entered, animals, because they're under the dominion of man, are going to suffer the same fate. But man and animals and the earth itself begin to break down. In Romans 8, Paul declared creation was subjected to frustration and in bondage to decay. The whole of creation is groaning or suffering as in the pains of childbirth. Like man, all of creation is waiting for the redemption and renewal. You know, I don't think I have a week that goes by that I don't find myself uh, grieving or trying to encourage a fellow believer who is suffering or perhaps has a family member who's suffering the effects of sin. We, we are not spared as believers, but we're certainly not alone either. We know that Jesus understands our weakness we know that he will see us through and guide us through and walk with us during that time. And the other thing about suffering uh, that I think is important for us to recognize, we may not always see how God, in his grace, makes suffering useful by transforming us, renewing us, and making us more and more like Christ. But that, that's part of the plan of God in our suffering. That's why Paul was able to say in 2 Corinthians 4 that these are momentary light afflictions that produce an eternal weight of glory. You know, I was thinking this week how we love to quote, and I hear people misquote all the time, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good for those who are called. Sometimes I think we hang on to that verse in the midst of suffering, but honestly, this side of eternity, it may be difficult to see the good. We hang on to that in faith, but we're not sure that all things really work together for good. But let me assure you, based on not just Romans 8.28, but on the promise of God for all of those who love the Lord and all of those who walk with the Lord, we're going to be amazed, maybe not now, but in the future, we're going to be amazed to see how God used our suffering for his purposes and his glory, which really is all that matters. We're made for the purposes, and we're made for the glory of God. And, and let me assure you also that when I said that Jesus understands, it, it grieves the Father that we have to suffer. And perhaps one day soon, not perhaps, but one day, perhaps soon, he's going to put an end to our suffering. And I'm going to tell you when that moment comes, even the toughest moments we've experienced in this life will be lost and forgotten forever because of the eternal joy that we'll have of being with the Father and in a place of perfection. In the meantime, of course, that requires faith, and specifically faith in him. I've got a young doctor that I, uh, lives in another state that I talk to from, from time to time, and, and he's a uh, follower of Christ, but He's, he's gotten so disillusioned, he sees a lot of suffering, especially among uh, children, among, uh, we would say, innocents. And so he's, he's kind of to, come to a place where he's not sure about the goodness of God. And I've had to say to him, well, okay, you understand, you're not God, 
And right now, you can't really see what God is up to. And honestly, you wouldn't need faith if you understood everything about God and what he's up to. I mean, think about it. In our, in our day-to-day life, we, we say we're people of faith, but in our day-to-day life, how much do we really need faith? We know what to do, how to live, how to go to our job, how to take care of our family. We, we know all that. Faith comes in, it's critical at the point that we go through difficulty and that we go through suffering. You know, the final conversation we had about this recently I just asked this young man, really, um, what other option is there? If you're not going to faith God, if you're not going to trust God, if you're not going to believe God, what other option do you have? And and suffering and difficulty really cause us to to have doubts, cause us to struggle with our faith, but we need to come back to the fact that God is God, and our faith means that we trust him, that he's sovereign, and he's going to work even through that suffering. All right, let's, let's jump into Genesis um, that was just introduction. That's free. Uh, that doesn't cost me any time. That doesn't cost you any money. Okay? All right, before we jump into chapter 6, you'll notice uh, last week, chapter 5 wraps up telling us that Lamech, and you remember Lamech was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam whom he met. Remember that? Astounding. Lamech had a, uh, a son. He fathered a son that he named Noah. Now, what does the name Noah mean? It, it, mean, it means rest or comfort. Lamech was hopeful that Noah was going to bring rest or comfort from the curse, but it didn't turn out the way that he hoped. Noah was going to bring rest. Uh, the Hebrew word for rest literally is translated to breathe again or to catch your breath. Now, I love working outside. I love working hard. I love working up a good sweat. But I've noticed as the years have passed, I have to stop a lot more often to catch my breath. Okay, well, Noah, the the name of Noah had the idea of a breath of fresh air. Where? In a world of increasing wickedness. You know, we saw in chapter 4, the line of Cain had, had walked away from God. The line of Cain was murderous. The line of Cain was was wicked. And chapter 5 last week was encouraging because we're seeing a a righteous line that's established and and flourishing. But unfortunately, by the time we get to chapter 6, even the line of Cain is becoming corrupt because all of mankind is corrupt. You know, I was thinking this week about the corruption of mankind. and, And it's sad that even a righteous line like the line of Seth can eventually become corrupted. But but we see that today. You can see some of the godliest families, some of the godliest parents. Were they perfect? No. But did they do things right? Yes. They raised their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and yet their kids walk away. It happens over and over and over again. Even in the church, we see that. Well, I was just thinking about the corruption and ungodliness. I know this is going to sound like a really weird deal, but what came to my mind was Newton's first law of motion. You all know Newton's first law of motion? You studied this in high school. College for sure. What's the first law of motion? How about you ever heard of inertia? You know what inertia is? Okay, I'm getting some head nods now. An object in motion tends to what? Stay in motion. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. Okay, now think about that. Stay with me for just a moment. Once mankind rebelled and sin entered the human race, that started the ball rolling. Sin became an object in motion. So for all of our earthly history, past, present, and future, we see the inertia of sin at work. It's in motion. It's it's rolling. And we would say, I guess, in our day, it's even gaining speed. 
And the reality is for us as, as sinful human beings is that we're always going to move towards sin. It's like, it's like a gravitational pull. If we aren't fighting it, if we aren't pushing back continually, we're going to give in. You remember what God said to Cain in chapter 4? Sin is doing what? It is crouching at your door. If you don't master it, if you don't control it, it will master, it will control you. And we're, we're caught up in that same problem that Cain had of sin crouching at our door. Now, think about the other side of the law of motion. An object in motion tends to stay in motion. An object at rest tends to stay at rest. You know, our tendency even as believers, is to let our walk with God or let our spiritual life rest. And it's hard to get it going. It's hard to keep it moving. I, don't, I certainly don't need to tell you that. If you've walked with God for any length of time, you know that. And that is because we are naturally going to drift toward passivity in our spiritual lives. So, so without overstating the obvious, if you don't work to keep your spiritual life in motion, sin, which is always in motion, will overtake you just as it did Cain. Just like Cain, the same warning God gave him comes to us, sin is always crouching at the door. All right, let's dive into chapter 6. That's where we're supposed to be this morning. Paige, thank you for reading. That way I don't get penalized for that time. That buys me a few more minutes, so I appreciate you reading that for me this morning. All right, verses 1 through 8 are the primary focus I want you to see this morning of, of chapter 6. In, in chapter 3, a battle begins. The battles between the word of God and the will of God and the word of man and the will of man. And that battle has continued throughout history. And, and it's well documented all through Scripture. In fact, if you look through Scripture, the Bible portrays that battle in, in several different pictures. Light and darkness, good and evil, those who scatter, those who gather, the broad way, the narrow way, those who are for Christ, those who are against Christ, those who build their life on the rock, those who build their life on the sand. So you see the battle over and over and over through Scripture. And in the first five chapters we've covered these last seven weeks, we've seen 1,500 years of history, and the battle has done nothing but intensify since chapter 3 through those 1,500 years. We compare the, the descendants of Cain with the line of Seth. Cain lost the battle. Why? Because he let sin master him. And that resulted in a great deal of evil being unleashed on humanity. The line of Seth. We looked at last week. Initially, the line of Seth called on the name of the Lord. You remember we read that last week. That happened with Seth's line. The people began to call on the name of the Lord. After Enoch, the people began to call upon the name of the Lord. But now we've come to a time in history where, look, it says this, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Stop, stop and think about that again. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we're here in chapter 6. We're, we're on the brink of a decisive moment in world history. In the 1,656-year post-creation, there's going to be a climax in this battle between good and evil. It, it seems, if you've been following the story, it seems that evil is about to win. You've got even the godly line of Seth that is now becoming wicked. It seems like evil's about to win, and everything, everyone is going to be destroyed. God's been very patient. He's warned mankind. We saw last week Enoch was the first uh, a preacher, if you will, that was speaking out and confronting the lies and confronting the, the deception and warning of God's judgment. And now that, that judgment is coming. 
God is not going to let this rampant wickedness go on. He's going to deal with the wickedness. And listen, for us today, the flood is a reminder. Every time we see the rainbow, yes, it's a reminder that God will never again destroy the earth by flood, but it's a reminder, it's an exhortation, it's an, it's an encouragement in our day that we need to be remembering our situation. And that is this, just like in the time of Noah, God is once again going to step into human history. He's not going to destroy the world by flood, but he's going to step into human, uh, human history, and we need to remember that he's coming. Knowing that he's coming should compel us as believers to live in obedience, and knowing that he's coming should compel us, if we care about anybody around us who doesn't know Christ, it should compel us to do what Enoch did and do what we'll see Noah did, and that is to warn people of what is to come. He's going to intervene again in human history, and that is not a reason for us to despair. In fact, it's an encouragement. Just as in the time of Noah, in our day, it seems like evil's overcoming good, but evil is not going to win. God is going to step in and, and deal with evil and put an end to it. Okay, let, let's get into the first eight verses. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that the population was multiplying. We already saw in chapters 4 and 5 that men were having sons and daughters. You only see the sons in the lineage because the lineage is traced through the sons, typically the firstborn, but not always. I mentioned to you last week that the line of the Messiah would go through Seth. Seth was, excuse me, Shem. Shem was not the firstborn son of Noah. Sometimes the firstborn son was, was passed up for various reasons, usually sinful reasons, but, but the, you see the lineage through uh, the sons who were born, but we know that men were also having daughters, not just sons. But look at verse 2. This is a point of controversy for some scholars. Verse 2 says, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then look down in verse 4. You see the reference to the Nephilim. The Nephilim were on the earth when the sons of God were taking wives from the daughters of men. It says, these were mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Now, the only other place in Scripture you see the word Nephilim is in Numbers 13. And in Numbers 13, it was talking about the giants who were in the land of Canaan. You remember that Joshua um, sent the spy, or Joshua and Caleb were two of the 12 spies that were sent in to spy out the land. And they came back and said that there were Nephilim. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat, and I, I'm not a, not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm not sure that is a really good translation of the word. But anyway, let's take this word Nephilim. These weren't some kind of alien beings. Some scholars would say that the Nephilim were the result of verse 2, the sons of God uh, marrying and, and procreating with the uh, daughters of men. That they would say there's some kind of super breed that's a result of that union between the sons of God and daughters of men. Some scholars, and, and I'll be honest with you, um, there are pastors on our staff who have a different view of this than me, but, but let me say this up front. It doesn't matter. What I'm about to tell you here in chapter 6, 1 through 4, whether I'm right or wrong, doesn't matter. It has nothing to do, it doesn't impinge any of our doctrines, and certainly not the doctrine of salvation. So it's not important, I'm just explaining it, because sometimes this will come up in conversation with people if they, they look at Genesis. Who, who are the Nephilim? Well, a lot of folks believe that the sons of God were angels, fallen angels. And these fallen angels are taking on human form and mating with the daughters of men. So they're suggesting that the offspring, the Nephilim, were kind of half human, uh, half supernatural beings. Now, I don't have time this morning to trot out all the passages they use to, to push this view, but, and, I, and I can't say unequivocally that interpretation is, is wrong. I, I can't say that, but I do think that's a stretch. 
And anytime I come to Scripture, I look for a literal reading that gives a simple explanation. And that's, just what, that, that's what I see here in this passage. Well, why did God put this here if it's so confusing? Well, we've made it confusing. I think the reason God put this here is for us to learn and, and believe from a very simple and straightforward approach. And so this is what I would say. These verses here in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 are in the context of God showing how much wickedness had grown and prevailed in the earth. And one of the ways that wickedness has always grown throughout all of history has to do with people marrying. Now, I did not just say marriage is evil. Are we clear? Okay, don't misunderstand me. I didn't say marriage is evil. But here's the simplest explanation of this passage. The line of Seth and they're called the sons of God because this was a godly line, started marrying the line of Cain, the daughters of men, men uh, women who were beautiful but ungodly. Now, I also did not just say that women are ungodly, okay? Can we be clear on those two things today? If you're taking notes, I didn't say marriage was evil. I didn't say women were ungodly. But what's happening is you had the godly line intermarrying with the ungodly line. Now, we already said the line of Seth had, be, had begun to get corrupted by wickedness, so it's not implausible that they would begin to intermarry or begin to marry ungodly women. And because of our sin nature, anytime you mix godly and ungodly or you mix light and darkness, it's fairly easy for the darkness or for the ungodliness to increase. When I was a student pastor, I would frequently talk to our students about their close relationships, close friendships. They needed to have relationships with lost people, reach them for Christ, but they couldn't be their closest friends. And what I would do to illustrate that is I would put a chair up on the platform, and I'd get two students basically of equal size and weight. I'd stand one on the chair and one on the floor. I'd have them grasp forearms, and I'd tell them, you try to pull him on the chair, you try to pull him to the floor. What would happen every time? The one on the chair is always going to get pulled down. And it's the same thing that happens when you mix light and darkness. It's very rare for a godly person to move an ungodly person toward godliness. It usually goes just the other way. You remember that God, when the Israelites were about to move into the, the land of Canaan and about to take possession of the promised land, he warned them not to intermarry with the Canaanites. Why? Because they're ungodly people. Because they worship false gods. And, and you can't mix ungodly and, ungod, uh, ungodly and godly. And so what is being illustrated here is that when you mix godly men and women with ungodly men and women, when you do that in marriage, families are destroyed and civilizations decay. That's why, and listen to me, if, if you're in the room and you're a single, that's why scripture is so clear about not being unequally yoked. What does that mean? Well, back then they would plow the field with oxen. If you had a big, strong ox and you had a little weak ox and you tried to plow with them, they're just going to go in circles. They're not going to get anywhere. They're not going to accomplish anything. That's why Scripture says that light and darkness do not mix. If you're a single in the room, I want to say to you what I said to our high school senior girls a couple of weeks ago. You need to ask God to not only bring you someone who's a believer, but someone who's walking with God just like you are. It's not enough for someone just to claim to know Christ. You need to look at their life. You need to examine their life. You need to make sure that they are walking with the Lord or you're going to be going nowhere in that marriage except toward frustration. God is illustrating here the advance of wickedness, and it came through, through the marriage situation back then. Now, back, back to the Nephilim. The description there in verse 4 implies that they were great in stature. You see that they're well-known 
um, men of renown. Please don't take men of renown to be a, a thing of um, they were great leaders or great kings. These may have been kings and leaders, but they were renowned. They were well known because of their excessive wickedness. Now, they could have been, these Nephilim could have been the offspring of this mixture of the godly and ungodly line. We, we don't know that. But, but here's the bottom line. What, what is 6, 1 through 4 about? It's a warning from God that shows what happens when we let sin rule over us. It, it's a reminder that we have to continually push back against sin so that we can raise godly generations who call on the Lord. Godly generations who will courageously stand up for God and the word of God without compromise. That's what those first four verses is about. Genesis 1 through 4 is a picture of, of compromise. It's an example of the increase in wickedness, which is exactly why God's about to judge humanity, because of the wickedness that existed. All right, one other quick thing in, in the first four verses here that we need to answer. What is verse 3 talking about? My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. God is not declaring that rather than live 900 or 1,000 years now or hundreds of years now, that, that man's limit is 120 years because people after the flood live that long. People today don't live that long. That's not what he's saying there. The 120 years mentioned here in verse 3 is God again giving warning of what is to come. The word abide, my spirit shall not abide in man. The word abide means to struggle. So God is saying, look, man has gotten so incredibly wicked, my spirit is not going to continue to struggle with man because man's violence and man's evil has just reached the peak. So I'm not going to continue to struggle with man. So what is God doing here? He's giving the countdown. In 120 years, judgment is going to come in the form of a flood. Now, don't miss this. Look at the incredible patience of God here. For 1,500 years, he's watched man continue in sin, continue in rebellion, continue to grow more and more evil and more incredibly wicked, but God is still giving 120 years. He's patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Verse 5, we saw this, we talked about this a moment ago. Man is only continually evil. That's the perfect description of all of unredeemed humanity, including us. We, we are not basically good people. We are not, I, I laugh when I hear this, we are not evolving to a better and better state. We're not good. We're not going to evolve to more goodness because we're not good. We're evil to the core. We are completely sinful. But you know what we like to do, especially if we're resistant to the message of the gospel? We like to talk about all the good things that we do and all uh, what good people we are. No, apart from Jesus, there is nothing good in us. Anyone who has not bowed the knee to Christ as Lord and still has himself on the throne, his works are not good. They are worthless. In fact, Isaiah 64, 7, Isaiah said, your best acts of righteousness are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Yes, we are only evil continually. Every intent of our heart turns toward evil. So verse 6 tells us God regretted that he had made man. Your translations may say God repented. Now, now what do we do with that when Scripture tells us, in Malachi 3, 6, God does not change? 
What do we do with that when James tells us there's no variation in God, no, no shifting shadow? How do, we, how do we view this apparent declaration from God that he's changed his mind about making man? People changed. People became so evil that God had to change the course of his providence. His providence is, is how he directs uh, the affairs of men. God did not stop loving man. God did not stop caring. God did not cease to be a merciful God. God didn't give up on man. What happens after the flood? There's still eight people, four men and four women, that are going to repopulate the earth once again with humankind. No, God is unchanging. God is unchanging in his holiness and his justice. So because he doesn't change, he has to judge man's sin. But let me tell you, that grieves God to judge sin. Again, we see here in Genesis, it was man who changed. And God is simply following through and being faithful to his character as a holy God. Let me give you you the opposite example of that to, to help illustrate this. An opposite example is in the book of Jonah. God was going to judge the people of Nineveh. He said he was going to bring judgment on them. But after Jonah, unwilling though he was, after Jonah went and preached to them, they repented. Listen to what Scripture says. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Does that mean that God can't be trusted because he changes his mind? No, God didn't change. He was bringing judgment on them because of their sin, but because they repented and because they returned to God, he didn't have to judge them. He changed direction because the people change. When there's true repentance, God forgives. I love what, what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God has not changed his mind about man. God is sorry that he made man because of the direction man has gone. Verse 7 tells us this. God is going to blot out man from the face of the land. He's going to blot him out. That means utter destruction, complete removal. Now, now think about that idea of complete removal for just a minute. You ever wondered why we don't see any record anywhere in the Bible or any historical record anywhere that when those flood waters receded? I don't know if you remember, but I told you a couple of weeks ago, it's likely the population was hundreds of millions. It would not be unlikely that it was over a billion people by the time of the flood. Where were all the piles of bodies or at least bones? Ken Ham, who's the founder of CEO of Answers in Genesis, and he also created the Ark Encounter Creation Museum. By the way, if you've never been there, especially if you have children, it's worth every penny and every bit of time to go to the Ark Encounter. Creation Museum too, but the Ark Encounter, and to, to see this in real life. But Ken Ham is an expert on Genesis, and in his commentary on Genesis, he says this as a record of fact, there is no evidence of the pre-flood civilization found in the fossil record. The bones of all those hundreds of millions or a billion or more people, they don't exist. God blotted out man from the face of the earth. Why, why do I make a point of that? We need to continually be, be reminded of the devastation of sin. Not just their sin, but our sin. 
Our sin is the reason we experience disease and suffering and, and death and all the forms of evil that we have in our world today. It's because of our sin, not because of God, not because he doesn't care. It's because of our sin. And so he says in verse 7, I am sorry that I have made them. How, how can a God who never makes mistakes be sorry? You know, when we say, I'm sorry about something, we're either saying that we regret that we did something or that we uh, regret what happened. I wish I hadn't done that. I wish that hadn't happened. But there are also times that you can be sorry about doing something that is right and something that is best. Have you ever had to confront a friend about sinful, destructive behavior? You know, Proverbs 27 and verse 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We are supposed to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to be trustworthy enough to confront them about their sinful, destructive behavior. We may do that and be sorry that we had to do that, but it wasn't the wrong thing to do. Ever had to spank your child? Well, certainly not. They're all angels here at Geyer Springs. You ever had to spank your child? Proverbs 20, 30 says, sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. You may regret having had to spank your child, but it's the right thing to do. So what am I saying is, our emotions may be sorry, but it's a necessary and the right thing to do. And that's how we understand Genesis 6, 6, and 7. On the level of his divine will, God knew that creation was no mistake. Again, he allowed the earth to be repopulated after the flood. So on the level of his divine will, creation was not a mistake, but on the level of his emotions, the way man turned out brought God great sorrow. So God could say with, with complete honesty, he was sorry that he had made man and yet still be a God who makes no mistakes. We need to understand that God's sorrow includes the fact that his heart is broken over men and women who choose to live without him and, and choose to rebel against his laws and ignore his kindness. Our sin breaks his heart. Verse 8, but. Some of my favorite words in Scripture, but. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. So in the midst of all this wickedness is a, is a glimmer of hope for mankind. The, the world deserved judgment. But in the midst of the wickedness that brought the judgment of God on the world, Noah found favor because he was a righteous man. However, don't miss the focus here. It's not that Noah was a righteous man. It's not that Noah was a good man. The focus here is not the goodness of Noah. It's the grace of God. The word favor there is the same word as grace. Literally, Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Listen, Noah was born a sinner just like every other man who was ever born. In fact, when we get to chapter 9, you're going to see Noah drunk and naked in the middle of the living room floor. The curse of Adam was on Noah as much as any man. And yet Noah... You go back to Hebrews 11, over to Hebrews 11, that great hall of faith, Noah's recorded in there as a man of faith. Why? Because we see here in Genesis 6 that Noah obeyed God. Rain had never occurred. How could a flood even be in the mind of any human being? And, and God told Noah to do this crazy thing, and Noah obeyed God. He was a sinner, but he wasn't living in rebellion. 
He wasn't perpetuating all the wickedness that we see. Noah received grace. Paul said grace is the gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one can boast. Even though Noah was a righteous man, even though Noah obeyed God, that's not why Noah was saved by God. He was saved by God simply because God gave Noah grace. Y'all are listening too slow. We're only through eight verses. Okay, listen, I can't, I, can't, um, I can't go verse by verse through the rest of the chapter. Let me, let me, and it's pretty simple, but let me just give you some highlights and answer some questions. Here's the first one. God told Noah to build the ark of gopher wood. We don't know what that is. As far as we know, it doesn't exist today. In the Hebrew, it's actually pronounced gopher. Kind of like if you live in Chennault, you would say gopher. If you live in Saline County, you'd say gopher. Okay, gopher wood. Not named after an animal, it's just a kind of wood we don't know. Interestingly, he was told to cover the ark in pitch, okay? That's a, that's a resin, it's, it's a covering or, or a waterproofing, but here's what's interesting about the word pitch. The word pitch here in the, in the Hebrew is a derivative of the same word as atonement. The pitch covered the ark, atonement covers our sin. The blood of Jesus is the atonement or the covering for our sin, and it keeps us from judgment. The pitch that covered the ark kept the waters of judgment out of the ark. Isn't that interesting? What about the ark? Uh, we're given the dimensions here in cubits. A cubit could be anywhere from 18 to 20 inches, a short cubit, a long cubit. Let's go with the short cubit. That means the ark was 450 feet long. That's a football field and a half, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high with three decks. We'll, we'll talk later about the covenant with Noah and, and why two pairs, why seven pairs. But let, let me just, let me get to this final point today. Verse 22, the last verse of the chapter. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. The man was a laughingstock, ridiculed. He's building this huge ark and telling people he's building the ark because his God told him a flood is coming. They've never seen a drop of rain. What's a flood? He did this. He did all that God commanded him. Noah found favor with God because God saw in Noah a man who would be obedient and faithful. He was a sinner, but he was a repentant sinner. He was a man with a, with a self-will like we all have, but he submitted his will to the will of the Father. That's why Noah and, and his wife and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were all spared. And God formed a, basically a new creation out, out of them. Well, what, what do we do with all that? Any, anytime we come to the Word, we need to ask the question. We're, we're not just looking at a story. We need to ask the question, what, what is God saying here? And, and specifically, what is He saying to me? And that answer could be vastly different in this room because every believer in this room has the Spirit of God living in him, living in her, and the Spirit of God speaks to them where they are at their point of need. So, so it could be very different for everyone. But let me just suggest three or four thoughts before I give you some time to reflect. And here's the first. If God were looking today for a righteous man, a righteous woman, a righteous family, would his eyes fall on you? 2 Chronicles 16.9, Asa was a king who had followed the Lord with all his heart, been obedient to the Lord. But a time came in his life when he quit trusting God. 
There was all these wars going on back then. God had helped Asa and his armies, who were much smaller, defeat the Ethiopians and the Libyans. But now he had an issue with the king of Syria, and Asa didn't seek God. The prophet comes to Asa in 2 Chronicles 16 and says, Because you have failed to seek God, the king of Syria has escaped your hand. In other words, God would have given you the king of Syria. God would have given you victory where you wouldn't have to struggle with them anymore. But now you're going to have ongoing struggles with Syria because you didn't seek God. And in the midst of pronouncing this judgment on Asa in 2 Chronicles 16:9, the prophet says this, The eyes of the Lord search across the land, looking for one whose heart is completely his so that he may support him. What if God's eyes were searching across the land today? Here's the second thought from this passage. I wonder if we truly understand the grace that we've been given by God. You know, last week I made the comment that, that maybe if we had more of a, an accurate picture of how depraved we are, the depravity of our sin, that would lead us to great, greater thankfulness for what God has done and greater obedience. Well, maybe grace as well. If we really understood the grace that God has poured out on us, maybe that would help us be more obedient in our walk with God. If you really thought about how wickedly sinful you are, and I'm, not, I'm pointing at you, me too, how wickedly sinful you are and how gracious God has been. Here's another thought. What has the most inertia in your life? What has the most inertia? What, what's in motion in your life? And what's at rest? If sin is in motion, but your spiritual life is at rest, sin will master you. What's in motion and, and, and what's, what's at rest? And I think the final thing I would say this morning we need to think about is our responsibility to warn people of what's to come. Enoch, and we'll see also Noah, we're continually warning people the judgment of God is coming. God is a holy God. God is a just God. But God is also a merciful and loving and gracious God. You don't have to go through this, this judgment, this destruction. And we have the same calling today. We're living in a day, I don't, I don't know how close we are to the end, but a day of incredible wickedness. Jesus said it would be just like in the days of Noah when he returns. We may be more wicked than that. People need to know that judgment is coming. But that there's a safe place, just like the ark. That if they're in Christ, they won't experience, they won't face that judgment.